Welcome to the Breaking into Stars podcast, where it features stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. According to DoSomething.org, over 1.2 million students drop out of high school every year in the United States alone. That's a student every 26 seconds, or 7,000 a day. On today's Breaking into Stars episode, we have a conversation with Rodney Urquhart, who talks about how he never graduated from high school or college to become a senior engineer at Slack. He was introduced to us through Jules Walter, who's a product manager at Slack, and talks about how uh, he's involved with diversity through Dev Color as a black engineer, helping other black engineers get into tech, and especially covers themes about how he became an engineer without going to a boot camp, negotiation, that works engineering programs, support systems, and how someone can go from leaving their home in North Philly at 16 years old to work at Burger King, Sears, Best Buy, Comcast, and Microsoft to one of the hottest startups in Silicon Valley. If you want to hear about another story about someone that never graduated from college, make sure you listen to our first episode featuring Albrey Brown. It's an amazing episode. Both of these are amazing episodes, and you don't want to miss it. Tell your friends and check it out. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. Next. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arthur and Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yes, yeah, so it's 8 p.m. on a Thursday night, and we're recording out of one of the coolest startups in Silicon Valley. The company is called Slack. If you work in tech, you're most likely using their product, and if you haven't heard about them, you will be using it once you break in. Right now, we're sitting in there gathering room, looking through the floor-to-ceiling windows, overlooking the city, feeling like Batman. Views. Uh, a lot of views. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're here with the homie Rodney Urquhart, who's from North Hello. Philly. Shout out North Philly. He heads up the test infrastructures team at Slack. He's worked at a lot of amazing technology companies, including the Yammer team at Microsoft, ThoughtWorks. He's part of Dev Color, And yeah, he's, he's just super dope. So you know, Rodney, you must have had to go to a lot of a really good school to to get up to this point. So what, what college did you go to? What, what, what was your GPA? School of the hard knocks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't go to college. I didn't I dropped out of high school. So, you know, I don't I don't think I actually have a, a solid answer to that. Like, I don't I don't have a GPA that you would be impressed by. <laughs> take yeah. us take us back to your high school years when you were growing up. What was your childhood like? Yeah, so for me, I, I grew up in North Philly. A lot of my life was focused primarily around just surviving, trying to mm-hmm. find, you know, you know, just different avenues to try to enjoy life in an environment where everybody's hostile, but it's what's necessary to survive. And we talked about hostility in the beginning of in the pre-chat and your high school experience. You know, what was the focus in high school? Oh, the focus was absolutely on, it was, I guess, all right, so- my transition into high school, my anticipation was that I would have access to so much more information than I did in, in elementary school. But the reality of my situation proved to be different in that my focus was solely on surviving and essentially not being shot, not being killed, not being beat up and being able to like just make it home. Um, there's a lot of gang wars. There's a lot of sit at the right tables, talk to the right people. 
and you know definitely don't be caught don't be caught off guard so yeah yeah no so so you know survival was really important to you growing up um not just because of the environment that you were growing up up in for yourself but you were also a leader within your family in and of itself can you talk about your family and you know what those dynamics were like definitely um a lot of what drove me was to to be that role model for my brothers and sisters that I didn't necessarily have. So I'm how many com- did you have? So I come from a family and uh, we got, thir- I got 13 brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest boy. Uh, so as the oldest male, you know, there's a certain level of, you know, I, I used to joke and call myself Atlas in that, like I had the world on my shoulders. Like Atlas Shrugged, like Aunt Ayn Rand, the book. No, like Atlas, the, the, the God, the God. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. There's a book based off of that. That's dope. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so like, so my perspective was the world's on my shoulders. The people I love and care most about are watching. What am I going to do? And for the most part, it was about showing them that they could survive and that they could, you know, they'll be okay. Yeah. So take us back to the moment. So you mentioned you, like high school for you was about surviving. And then at some point you decided that you wanted to drop out. Take us back to that moment. And what was your motivation for doing that? Kind of were there outside forces that kind of made, took you there? Yeah. So, so initially going into high school, I had an expectation that I would have access to so much more information, but it was nowhere near the reality of what I expected. So I knew that I couldn't stay in high school if I actually wanted to not fall into the trap that I saw all of the rest of my friends fall into, which is basically being associated with a gang having to sell, you know, weed and, and, and things like that just to be cool, so to speak, or, or to be in. So I dropped out because I, I knew that I would not survive high school. Like it wasn't, for me, it was, it was the sole focus was on if I stay in high school, the rest of my life is not going to be, you know, it's not going to be anything. But so it, it was a pipeline, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't leading to the future. <laughs> exactly. that it's like a school to prison pipeline. That's exactly what it was. And, um, and you also talked about like, what does survival even mean? Like, Well, survival means a few things, both on being able to provide for your family. For me, it was being able to make sure my brothers and sisters was eaten and, you know, we had a, a safe place to stay. But it was also about being connected with the right people mm-hmm. in your neighborhood. That way, you know, you weren't looked at as an opportunity for other people to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. So so we've uh, interviewed on a previous episode, one of our episodes, um, someone who came from North Philly and it was Italy and then she painted us the picture of what her high school was like. Can you give us, can you give the listeners in case they haven't heard that episode, just like a picture into what the neighborhood was like, what was like your high school like, what kind of resources did you have growing up in that area? So thinking back, my focus or... When I think about and I reflect on on, uh, on my childhood and, and what it was like, the area essentially, any adults that were, well, I'll do my best to try to, try mm-hmm. to describe it. For the most part, everyone who was not essentially um, in jail, they were hanging out on corner, street corners, essentially. And basically, growing up, my transition into high school and make, making sure that you survived the neighborhood was being associated with the right people and if you weren't associated with the right people you got into fights was that well if you weren't associated with the right people then you weren't protected being associated with the right gangs being associated with the right people you there was a level of protection that you actually obtained and that was safe passage when you're going back and forth to school yeah that's tough 
And you also talked about the dynamics inside of your, your home. Like you were exposed to like someone aspiring for entrepreneurship, which led to lack of resources in the home and, you know, food, being able to put food on the table. Can you talk a little bit about that too? So my dad, he was not one who believed or really wanted to um, work for a major company. And he's been trying to, you know, start his own, he, run his own company essentially to, you know, to provide essentially for his family. That's been something that's always been a struggling business of his, but that's the way he's fed his family all of his life. And he kind of like followed after his father's footsteps. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where he was looking to prove to himself that he could do essentially what his father did. Because again, my grandfather, he had, all, he had many businesses and he taught all of his kids essentially how to take care of your family. And to take care of your family is to essentially be able to provide for them and to create opportunities for them. It's unfortunately through the era that they went through, you know, the whole crack epidemic and things like that, you know, they struggled with um, factors of the environment, you know, drinking 40s on the corner, you know, getting involved in drugs and things like that. And there was a period of time where, you know, my family went through similar transitions and and we were affected by, you know, um, the quote unquote war on drugs. Now, my father, my father has never been in jail. Well, that's a lie. He's not stayed longer than six months. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, you know, for me, it, he was working and my mom had left when I was five. So a lot of the times it was just me at home with the rest of my brothers and sisters. So the goal was on how do I not necessarily create, but how do I help foster an environment where both we survived and we, you know, we, we had opportunities to, to find ways out. And I don't know, I guess, I guess going back, because one of the things that you eventually mentioned was, how do I survive my environment? And I knew that high school wasn't going to be a thing for me uh, and where I would survive, I would survive in my environment. So when I made the decision, I made this, I eventually made the decision because I knew high school wasn't working for me. And because I knew that I couldn't actually focus on education, I dropped out of high school. Dropping out of high school was pivotal for me because at that same exact time, having such a large family, I moved out of my dad's house. I moved out of my dad's house and I started working or I started attending a GED program. It's called a Keystone Job Corps. It's a 12-month program. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind this program is that you could study a trade such as mm-hmm. carpentry. Carpentry. Thank you. Carpentry. Okay. Carpentry or things like hotel clerk. And while you're still preparing for your GD. So it's like kind of like a vocational school. Mm, yeah. And I went there and moved out of my dad's house. This is the, you know, my first big step in life to both escape and try to figure out a way to survive on my own. And I, within four months, I got my GD, completed a, a few of their programs and eventually left there early. And from there moved back within, back into my grandma's house or not back into my grandma's, moved into my grandma's house. It was pivotal for me because I got to, I did escape essentially, at least the environment that I was in, but I knew that, okay, well, what's next? I had to kind of like try to figure that out. Yeah. And you're still 16, right? So you're supporting yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm 16 at the time. You're, you don't have anyone looking over your shoulders. Basically you're living with you. your grandma at the time? Yeah. I was living with my grandma. Um, There's no other adults, you, you know, me, my grandma, and a lot of my focus was, and the reason why I was able to to live with my grandma was because she needed me to do a few extra errands around the house, essentially. And in return, I was able to you know, stay in her basement and 
Yeah, that was my, that was, you know, essentially my first opportunity to be out on my own. Yeah. So now you're out on your own. Uh, what do you do next? So at 16, you know, I had my GED. I didn't have to, I didn't have to work. I didn't have to go to school, but I looked around and I saw that, you know, just being in contact with my brothers and sisters, that they were still struggling and that they were still, they still needed help. So I went to start trying to find work. And it's funny, as I was walking, you know, as I was walking up and down the streets, trying to just apply for jobs nearby, as I was walking, you know, streets nearby, just trying to apply for jobs, I would get stopped by the cops. They would, they would ask me like, you know, aren't you supposed to be in school? 16 years old, right? It got to the point where I had to carry around my GED. So they stopped stopping me and wow. trying to take me back to high school. But essentially, I started looking for work. The first job that I had, I worked at Burger King. And that was like critical for me because it was an opportunity, f- not only that for me to make money, but I would take food home and basically, you know, that would be dinner. And at times I took food home and I went to, you know, my dad's house and I was able to, you know, there's a sense of, it was an empowering feeling being able to not only put money in my pocket, but also to literally food bring food to, to the, Exactly. To the That's exactly what it is. So I was empowering feeling and, you know, you, you start working at Burger King and you start thinking about what your, you know, other jobs while you're there, you know, what other jobs were you considering? Or- so while I was working there, my goal was really, how do I, okay, this is great. I can, I'm making money. But how do I increase this? And I didn't really see many opportunities at the time that I was 16. And so I continued to work essentially at Burger King. Throughout that period, I eventually fell into, I fell into um, a pretty, I would say, deep depression. And it, it, really, it really stayed with me probably for two or three years. And I worked some other jobs, but I would say most of my time until I turned, until I turned 18 was spent in uh, fast food. And was it, was that depression caused because you felt like you you weren't feeling a sense of purpose from your your work, even though you were putting food on the table for your family, or what? Where was that depression coming from? Yeah. So for me, it was just a lack of purpose. Like, what was the point of everything? Right. Like, it was there was no reason for me to aspire because it didn't seem like there was. Yeah, it just didn't seem like there was any reason to. For me, it was just. You know, everything around me, you know, is struggle, pain, fighting, and both the environments that I grew up in, as well as just the environment, like you look around, you just look around and everything around you is just pain. It's just drama. It's just a struggle. And, you know, that's being born in that environment. You kind of get a a very narrow view of the world. And that view is depressing. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do to break that mindset? And. And so I would actually say I didn't do anything personally. Like I didn't break it myself. I actually had an external factor. As I was transitioning and were looking for more opportunities to make more money, essentially, I moved from fast food and did a little bit of security at the Bellevue Hotel in Philadelphia. Eventually moving from the Bellevue Hotel, you know, walking up and down that same Cotman Avenue in Philly, I eventually stumbled upon Sears. And I was just like, okay, you know, yeah, let's, let's go and apply at Sears. And it was at Sears, like my first day, I met a woman. Her name was Amy. And I didn't know this now, or I didn't know this then, but she was going to be a very, very pivotal moment for me. Or she was going to be pivotal for my life. So when I met Amy, um, she was looking to hire an associate, essentially. And when I met her, you know, there was this glow about her. Like 
it was just that I knew sparkle. that sparkle. Yeah, the, the the glow was it was I knew that this was a special moment. Like I didn't know why. I didn't really under, I, there was nothing really good happening in my life. So you know, and it, it hasn't happened up until that point. So I just figured like oh, this is different. There's something special here. I don't know what it is, and I don't like it, but this is important. That's what I felt. I knew that this moment was important. So I was, you know, just excited to see what was I about to discover. And she wound up taking a shot on me and giving me a job, you know, working at Sears, just stocking shelves and, and things like that. Over the course of the next couple months, you know, we, she and I developed a relationship where we would, you know, talk about our families and life. And eventually she and I formed a relationship. We started dating and, you know, I didn't really you know, I was surprised by it. It kind of caught me off guard. But at the same time, I was intrigued. And, you know, as we were dating, we were only dating for a couple of weeks before, you know, there was a lot of backlash that she received from like her friends. Why and was there a backlash? So my wife is white. Well, my, she's my wife now, but um, she's white. And, you know, being a black male in Philadelphia, the thought, you know, of the thought or the portrayal of a black male in Philly is always that of a thug and always that of somebody who would never be or never amount to anything. So a lot of her friends, a lot of her family, you know, they rejected this, our relationship. They rejected the idea that I could provide for her or create a great life for her, you know, and I kind of understood it. I understood why they felt that way. I had nothing, you know, of value (laughs) at that time. And, but the thing that was, What's critical for me was my wife rejected all of that feedback and she held you down. She, she held me down and she believed that I, that I could, or she, despite what everyone had told her, believed that we belonged together or that we, it was important for us to believe in each other more than others believe in our, than us essentially. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was like this moment of like, you know, Eureka, like I like, it was just this moment where it blew my mind. Like, here's this, you know, this woman I offered, in my opinion, I offered nothing to the relationship um, or not, nothing to the relationship, but I, I was of no sense of self-worth, right? Like there were, I didn't have a sense of self-worth because at the time, you know, she hired me, you know, and once we actually started dating, I had to quit. So I didn't have a job. I eventually got a job with her dad working at a glass factory, taking you know, glass off a conveyor, conveyor belt and putting it down. That's literally my job, <laughs> picking up glass and putting it down. And you said you had a realization at that, time, at that moment. And like right? somebody believed in you and saw the worth in you that you didn't see yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's a powerful thing. It was you know, not just in a relationship, but just in life, period. And so it was more than just the relationship. Like you, you guys took it so seriously. What did you guys do? And how old were you at the time, by the way? So I was 20 at the time and she was 24. Eventually, tensions after only a month of dating, tensions, um, you know, at home got a little difficult for her. And she got put in a position where, you know, she had to make a choice whether to continue dating me or to move out. And one week later, we started apartment hunting. And, you know, again, I'm just I'm at all right now. I'm like, okay, you know, she's moving out. I would say it was within within maybe maybe a couple of weeks that we were now moving in together. And that moment was, was extremely pivotal for me because it was at that moment that within me was born this refusing to accept anything now in that, uh, let, me, let me try to think of a better way to say this. 
the moment that she made the decision to leave the safety of her home to start and to build a, a life with me made me forever grateful. Yeah. And for me, it was, it was a moment where I kind of made, I made her promise. And I said that no matter how long it takes, I'm going to build a great life for us. That's beautiful. Did, did that, was that moment something that made you feel a sense of self-worth? Like, just be like, yo, like I have a purpose now, like I'm building for us. She gave me my sense of self-worth before I think that I came up with the decision to, to try to build a life for myself. My goal from that point on was to prove everybody wrong, like, right? Like it was to not only take care of her and provide for her, but I'm going to create her a life better than anybody thought I could. And not for anybody else, but because she deserved it, because she believed in me. That's what the focus was. My focus was on, I'm not going to let her be wrong. Yeah. That's what it was. I'm not going to let her be wrong. I'm going to make sure that she's right. That's beautiful. And what'd you do next? So, you know, once we moved in together, I just kind of like, I went into overtime. I, you know, I had multiple jobs. At times I had three jobs. And, you know, starting out, it wasn't, I wasn't in tech. I, I started out, like I mentioned, very humble beginnings. And I moved from working at a glass factory, um, making like $13 an hour. And that was actually some pretty decent money for me coming up from, you know, Burger King and security jobs. So I moved from, from there and I started to kind of set ambitions on not working dead end jobs. Like I tried to figure out how do I, because I knew that if I wanted to provide, the, uh, you know, a life for her, I had to have, I had to be an expert in something. I had to be really, really good at something. And in the pre-chat, you mentioned you had some interest that you were very passionate about growing up, right? Oh, absolutely. So, so, so growing up, I had a knack for um, taking things apart. I had a knack mm-hmm. for, I always had this curiosity about how things work. That's something that, I, like, you know, that I've always done. You know, the one moment in high school for me where I actually had a sense of, you know, a sense of like, oh, I, you know, I actually, I'm actually enjoying it. Yeah. I can do it was when it was a science fair. I had won a science fair by building my own uh, water filter about, out of a bunch of spare parts mm-hmm. um, that I found around the house. And that for me, I always had, I was always a tinkerer. Mm-hmm. I was always tinkering. And as I was going job to job, just trying to figure out how to make ends meet to help provide some level of value back into our home now, I started to look within myself and I tried to, to figure out what am I good at? And I knew I was good at taking things apart, understanding how things work, so I started trying to find a job where I could put that skill to use. Yeah. And did you know that jobs like software engineering existed out there? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I knew somebody had to build software, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. It was far away from you. It was like, not yeah. within my like, peripheral. Yeah. Like, it, was not, it was not something that I was aspiring to do or to become because it seemed like something that you had to have a PhD to do. Mm-hmm. And as a high school dropout, it seemed like an impossible feat. So my focus was on what's a t- what can I do right now mm-hmm. to grasp some level of or to maximize you know some of the strengths that I had, which was finding opportunities that others didn't see. So eventually I got a job at Best Buy. Best Buy was kind of like my first job where I was working with technology of some sort. I was selling computers and selling computers, I was really good at identifying what folks needed and what product was best to suit their needs. And I was just really good at selling and, you know, and I learned how to become a, a person, a people person. Like, how do I, you know, develop relationships with complete strangers in order to both help the company that I work for as well as to, to help them. Do you think that some of the skills 
that you developed some of those skills through your job at Burger King? The skills that I would say Burger King helped me develop, actually, not like you're absolutely right. Like I didn't quite make that same correlation at the time, but the thing that made me successful and it made me feel like I was quote unquote thriving at Burger King was my ability to learn. And essentially, I went from being a person who was just cleaning up around Burger King to knowing how to run all of Burger King. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that that skill that is still that same core principle of teach yourself something that you don't know in order to survive, in order to prosper. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're you're at Geek Club, right? So, right. So um, while I was working um, at Best Buy, I eventually, I you know, Geek Squad was kind of like blowing up and I looked over and, and, and I thought like, why, I can do that. Like, why, why am I um, selling computers when I could be fixing them? And, you know, I developed the right relationships with um, the folks there and eventually made the transition from selling computers to now fixing people's computers. And that Were you was- you good at that job? I was really good at the job. <laughs> I was, at times I could fix people's computers without having to, you know, have them check it in. And, yeah. and that didn't quite work well from a selling perspective. Yeah. But for me, it was fulfilling because- I could provide value. I can help others. But yeah. And um, in, in the pre-interview, you mentioned that um, working at Geek Squad actually led you to make a relationship with someone that was a pretty pivotal point at your life at that point, right? Yeah. So while I was working at Geek Squad, and because I had learned to help folks with computers and just develop relationships around problem solving, mm-hmm. um, eventually a person had came into get their computer uh, service that worked at Comcast. And they suggested that I should apply. They were impressed by my ability to not only fix their problem, but my intera- the interaction that we had was, was great. So they gave me their business card. And I eventually, when they gave me a business card, about a week later, I applied. I applied at Comcast. I thought it was going to be possibly out of reach, but I figured I would try it. I would go for it. And once I understood what the job was, which was helping people get on the internet, I was like, I know I can do that job. Like, I, you know, it's computers. I know yeah. I can do it. Yeah. And so as you're doing that that new job, you know, you talk about some of the things that you learned and, you know, the other things that you started to discover. So starting out at Comcast, the first thing that I had to learn was Comcast, in order to get you an internet, they have a, a very large set of different uh, software applications and I had to learn how to use all of these different applications. And you also have to have some level of fund- foundations in how the internet works, essentially, from how the modem connects to your local, your local data center or your local head ends, essentially. Sorry, that's the wrong, wrong term. Not did they center. give you training for that or did you kind of like learn on that on your own? So starting out, they give you, a, at the time, it was um, about a week's uh, worth of training. And Basically, they gave you some high-level principles of how Comcast internet infrastructure works and some of the most common reasons some people call in. I eventually, I learned that. And after learning that, I also started to find other opportunities and other, th- other ways that I can get people on the internet a lot quicker. And I worked at Comcast doing tech support for roughly about um, six months before I was eventually voted one of the top three tech support associates in like Jersey. And I, and I won a lot of like customer service awards and things like that. And that was fulfilling because mm-hmm. um, I felt like I was actually helping people. When people call Comcast, trust me, it's, they do <laughs> Trust me, we know. Been there. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> not a good ex- it's not a good experience. So I would do my best to, you know, just create the greatest experience ever. 
And only after six months, they eventually pulled me off the phones to train other people because they knew that I was doing really, really well. As I was doing that, I would report bugs in some of the softwares that we were, some of the software that we were given to use to help troubleshoot customers' problems. Eventually, you know, there were problems and I would find these problems and I would just report them and give really, really detailed reports of what was the issue. That work ethic of trying to find things to improve led me to discover a position at the National Support Desk. So I'm, I went from supporting our local New Jersey area to now supporting essentially globally uh, customers who had advanced issues. Yeah. What was the point when you realized like there's there's like other jobs out there? Because in the pre-chat, you mentioned there was a life event that happened to you when you realized yeah. that, listen, like everyone's going to be dead one day. Are we going to make the most of it? Tell our listeners about that moment in, in your life. Yeah, so it was it was about 24, 25 at the time, and I had an AVM. In, What's an AVM? So it's a medical term. The gist of it means that I had a tangle of blood vessels in my left ventricle, and that's in the center of my head, essentially. And to resolve it, I had two choices, either go with gamma knife radial surgery, which is, you know, where they where they essentially, um, you know, shoot a giant laser to burn and cauterize the blood vessels or open brain surgery where they would cut me open and, and take it out. Obviously, I opted for the, you know, less intrusive. Yeah, exactly. Less, less invasive approach. Throughout that whole process, it was a point of reflection where I was like, well, if this was it for me, would I be happy with my life? And did I do what I promised to do? Did I provide the life that I, I promised my wife? And I knew I, this, was, this could not be the end, right? This, I had to work even more aggressively now to make sure that I obtain my goal of building that life for my family before any unknown circumstances could happen or could arise like that again. Because time was precious. Because time is precious. And, 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 oh, time and, is precious, yes. yes. That was. Yes, Still time. is. And so did you start managing your time better? Like, did you start, like, creating a routine or... Or was it just like this rabid, like this maniacal drive that was like, I got to make this happen faster? Knowing that life is fleeting caused me to kick it into overdrive. And it caused me to always question, am I doing the best work that I am capable of doing? Questioning that will help you open up new possibilities for yourself. And that for me is, that was that moment. That's what did it for me. I started to question, is this the best that I can do? And I started to realize I was not even operating at like 10% of my capacity. That reminds me of a time when, um, when Idelin spoke to me about you know, how I was applying myself. And it was the same thing like that. I was probably applying like 10% of myself to the work. And she was like, well, you know, if you were here for a month, you know, are you, you know, what's everything that you will want to get out of it? What's everything you want to put into it? If you're not doing that, you know, you need to reevaluate. It sounds like you had a similar that's exactly what it, That's exactly what it was like. And at that moment, I realized that I realized at that point that I could learn anything and that if I could learn anything, then maybe I should test the limits of what's possible. And it's from there that I started to gain greater ambitions. I started to look around me and I realized that everyone around me, are, they're at different levels. And if nothing is impossible... If mm-hmm. I can do anything, then where is the where where can I go that I would reach new heights? 
essentially you were looking for Everest. Exactly. I you wanted to climb the highest hill. That's exactly what it was. And at times that was a person. And at times it was, you know, an opportunity that I didn't see, but I knew something else was there. Mm-hmm. While working at Comcast and I found, I looked around me and there were different folks in engineering all around me. And I was the only person where our group was the only group that was essentially still support um, where we weren't quite engineering. And the first thing I discovered was how much money engineering made in comparison to support. And the difference is drastic. Can you talk a little bit about that difference? So at Comcast, well, at the time that I worked at Comcast, the average support person maybe made between twenty-seven dollars to $30,000 per year. And the average software engineer made a minimum of forty-five dollars to $50,000. And that for me was huge. I was just like, you know, there's opportunities here that I'm, I'm not taking advantage of. And I know if I know that I can do anything, if I know that anything is possible, then who's to say that I can't grab that? I can't, you know, make that exact same amount of money and then therefore create the life that I want to create for my family. Yeah. And so as you started making those types of discoveries, how did you decide on which path you wanted to take? So this is where I learned to start talking to people. And I looked around and I tried to analyze both the work that they were doing and what did I find interesting, as well as how happy were the people who were doing the job. <laughs> That's very important. Yeah, it's very important because Comcast, we, you know, is we, there's a saying where, you, you know, you work to get in, you work to stay in. And, you know, as much as I, you know, I knew that I would be at Comcast for a long period of time, I wanted to make sure that I was at least enjoying what I was doing. And um, there was one group and one engineering um, organization around test engineering and uh, test automation. And I saw that, you know, they would go play ping pong every day. And, you know, um, they actually had a really great working relationship. Are you good at ping pong? I'm very good at ping pong. Oh, we need to play. Okay. I go in. All right. Keep going. They actually introduced me to ping pong, which, which is funny. I didn't play before that. But it's important to know how to build social, how to build skills to build social relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. And beat them at that game. You know, how many black guys do you know that are good at ping pong? Well, you know, what's funny. Once I realized that that was something that that was one of the ways that they socialized when they would leave because they were, they were software engineers. So they only worked nine, um, nine to five Monday through Friday. And as a support engineer, you worked on the weekends on the weekends. They weren't there. So I would actually flip the ping pong table up and I would play against myself on the weekends yep, yep. to get better just so <laughs> I could Gump. play with them. That's awesome. That's, That's exactly awesome. That's how you do it. And my goal, you know, at the time it wasn't like, oh, if it was fun, but it was, I knew that I need to know how to play ping pong so that I have something in common with them so that we can, that way I can build a relationship with them. 100%. It's kind of like rock climbing out here. You know, every engineer does some kind of rock climbing. It's a natural thing. It's a social setting, but you're in. Like, it's not just about That's having the skills. They've got to want to hang out with you too. Rock climbing is actually another skill that I picked up primarily for the purpose of networking. <laughs> Dope. Yeah, and we'll get into that, uh, more of that later. So tell us kind of, so you're looking around, you see that there are certain jobs that look interesting, but you still have to make that jump. So how did you ultimately jump from support to engineering and what did that lead you to? Yeah, so once I found an engineering group that, you know, looked like they were happy and looked like they were making a, a decent amount of money, the first thing that I started to do was just try to be friends, right? Like for me, it was about I need to, I, like, I don't know what I don't know. And the only way that I'll get that information is by asking the people who have the jobs that I want. So what I would start to do is I would go and just walk over and make small talk. 
look at the books on their desk, ask them about, you know, things that they're reading, things that they're learning, or just generally what's happening, you know, in their life. And um, one thing that I found that was interesting was people like to talk about things that they're good at and things that they want to be an expert in. Because if they can explain it clearly or if they can help somebody else, then it validates for them that they are an expert in that thing. So oftentimes I would go and as I would ask questions, I would be sure to frame questions in a way that they could help me understand how they are an expert in whatever given field. So in my Stro- field, Stroke the ego a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, it absolutely um, stroke the ego. My opinion is in human nature to the desire to feel important, the desire to feel like what you're doing is, you know, it matters. And if you learn how to take advantage of that, not for, you know, manipulative purposes, exactly, not for, you know, any ill intention, but just because at the end of the day, what you gain is more information and what they gain is validation. 100%. So it's a, it's a win win. Exactly. Awesome. So you find these people, they start dropping gems on you. What are some of the gems that you, that you learn from these people? So the first thing that I learned was that I had to learn how to code. And I didn't really know any computer programming languages at the time. The organization that I was looking to, to get into, they programmed in VBScript. And, you know, anyone listening, do not waste your time with VBScript. <laughs> <laughs> and what year was that in? Uh, this was... Um, you can guesstimate. I would say roughly about five or six years ago. So around 2009, 2010, or before that? Actually, it was earlier than that then, yeah. Uh, I, it was probably around eight years ago then, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was probably around 2000 and 2008, okay, I would nice. say roughly. But at the time, that's what they were coding in. So that's what I needed mm-hmm. to learn. So first thing I did was I picked me up a book and I started to try to teach myself to code. And VB scripting, you know, you're coding with the intent of automating a process. And, you know, the goal is that, you know, a person shouldn't have to manually do this thing more than once, essentially. So I started to try to teach myself some of the principles of test automation and some of the software tools that we we're using at the time. And that's where I got my start. And I didn't really get any of it starting out. Like it just seemed pretty mundane. And I've learned that that's the language I was programming in, not necessarily software engineering. Mm-hmm. So software. you were doing two things. You were learning how to program, but you're also learning the fundamentals of testing. So for our listeners who may not know like what software testing means, can you explain to them what it is and then what the value it provides to the engineering team? Absolutely. So um, one thing I may have mentioned um, in an interview is that the software tools that we were using, I would find a lot of bugs and I would report those bugs. A bug is basically something, an event that may occur within software that's unintended. So if you visit a website and the website does not load, there's likely you know, a bug that caused that issue, essentially an error in some line of code. And my job as a, well, the role of a software tester is to identify those issues and to put in place a certain level of tests that ensure that that problem never occurs again. And, you know, because I was already finding bugs in software, once I discovered that people got paid to do that, you know, and they got paid much more, a lot more money, a lot more money than I did. I was like, okay, like I can do that. I know I can do that. And I would essentially a 50% salary increase. And what kind of education would you say is traditionally that someone would traditionally need to have in order to get um, a QA or a QE type of job? You know, 
when I started out, everybody that I work with had bachelor's degrees. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously for me as a high school dropout, that was like an intimidating factor. Mm-hmm. But now having been in the field for a very long time, I don't think you need, I don't think high school is, or I'm sorry, not high school. I don't think college is a great resource if it's a good resource for you. And what I mean by that is if you learn in that format, if you can absorb information in that format, you should absolutely, you know, try to take advantage of it. But it is not, in my view, or even in my experience, the requirement for getting a job in any field, really, or at least definitely in software engineering. And I, you know, I can go into more detail in, but basically the thing that I realized was that folks who had degrees were struggling with the exact same problems that I was struggling with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was confused. I was just like, but you went to school, right? Like you, you know, I guess. Yeah. And I think a lot of people make the misconception, especially when someone is in high school, is people go into college thinking that a college is going to give you the skill set that you will need to then get a job. But most likely what happens is the college will give you the, like, a lot of theory. They'll give you a lot of history. They'll kind of teach you at a high level about an industry. And then once you start a job, your first employer is going to know that you're very green, that they're going to have to train you and teach you a lot. And maybe 5 or 10% of what you learn in college will actually be applicable on the job, right? Absolutely. So a lot of the people who started out at the same level that I was working on, I thought that I would be at a, at a disadvantage mm-hmm. and I would have to play catch up. But I actually grasped some of the information a lot quicker because I was essentially a blank canvas. I wasn't looking to compare it to what I learned previously. Mm-hmm. I was just looking to learn how, do I, to, how to do the job as opposed to try to figure out what, you know, how does this apply from what I learned in college, essentially. So my focus was much more on practicality. Like, how do I do the job they asked me to do? How do I find problems in software? How do I write tests? And that helped me learn a lot quicker. Now, there were some fundamentals as you advanced in your career that you, de- you absolutely should learn data algorithms and things like that. But I learned those things later on as I, you know, as yeah, I continue to progress. Yeah, exactly. so that's actually a great segue. So you made this pivotal jump from customer support to now working as a a testing engineer at Comcast, but like you mentioned, Comcast was still like this huge corporation. Even though people had degrees, it was still kind of underpaying you in some ways. You're making about forty-five, fifty thousand dollars. And then tell us about kind of your next steps and where did your career go after Comcast? Oh yeah, so I should clarify. So when I started working, so in order to in order to actually become a software tester, because I didn't have my college degree they actually didn't allow me to transfer as an employee directly into that role in order to, for them to give me a shot. They, you know, they kind of like positioned it where I had to actually come in as a consultant. So I wound up quitting Comcast as an employee and then coming in as a consulting for the company so that essentially they minimize the risk when they're in because essentially, you know, as perception is absolutely perception, you know, n- not having a degree was difficult for them to cope with yeah exactly or, or believe that i was capable of doing their job but they said that there, there's obviously no guarantee but if you came in as a consultant you'd at least we'd at least have the opportunity risk-free to essentially validate and you know check that you could actually do mm-hmm. the job got it got it so you know going back to arthur's question so you become this consultant and you start making these discoveries that you know caused you to 
you know, really start increasing your salary and increasing your learning and things like that? You know, what was, can you walk us through that discovery process and how you got to Microsoft? Absolutely. Microsoft is a little bit of a couple, a little bit, a bit of a, some steps. Yeah, there's some steps. So I'll walk you through my process a little bit. So basically, as I, I may have mentioned, I'm always looking for how do I get ahead and what's the next best next step. So as I became a consultant and I was working for Comcast as a consultant, I tried to figure out how do I now become an employee or how do I, you know, what is the range in which, how much money can I make essentially? That's what I was looking for at the end of the day. And what I realized is there's a range that companies are willing to pay. And I was determined to find out, well, where do I stand on that range? And where is the ceiling? As I continued to try to probe into it, what I discovered was I was not even within the range of a typical software engineer. I was being paid $35,000 a year in a role where my peers or people that I was um, working with were making a 45, 50,000 plus. And it was realizing that I started to look outside of Comcast. Essentially. And it wasn't because you were money hungry. You were just like realizing that you were being underpaid and undervalued. Is that accurate? Absolutely. For me, because I couldn't comfortably provide for a wife and a child at the time, I was always looking for ways to to make more money, not to hoard it, but to to eat, <laughs> right? Yeah, like to, and you know, well, you've been doing that your entire life, exactly. You know, so I was looking for 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 opportunities where I can better position myself so that I can provide a better life for my family and to survive and to survive, exactly. And more, just not just survive. I want it to thrive. Mm-hmm. There's a difference, right? I'd always survive, but it was no longer good enough to survive. Yeah. Yeah. So you start looking outside of Comcast and then what? So for about after working at Comcast now for roughly about six years in total, four years as a consultant, or I'm sorry, four years as an employee, two years as a consultant, I eventually, or what happened was the department that I worked for was being closed. And I had to either continue to work as a consultant for other companies or I had to find a full time opportunity. I was fortunate in that at the end of this phase, Comcast had offered me a position now officially as an engineer to come and work for their organization. And it was, you know, it was, it was hugely important because here I was, you know, being paid a lot less money. That's not, that's not the proper way to say that. It's okay. Um, Talk. But yeah, so I was being, you know, fairly cheaply. And here I had now an employment offer that essentially... It was a 50% pay increase, you know, and that was, you know, it was hugely important for me. And that gave me a sense of, I knew I was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I knew it. But then it also made me question, okay, what else is out there? Mm-hmm. And because if I go and then become an employee in Comcast again, I knew I would stay there likely for the rest of my life. Yeah. And before I accepted that offer, I started to look outside and I started to actually look up the average you know, salary of engineers in the area. And I started to apply for other positions. I eventually had a friend refer me to a role at uh, the knee company. And while I was going through the interview process, I was, you know, tested on a lot of my, you know, technical ability and, you know, what I learned. And 
the feedback that I got was very positive. And that was the first time that I actually, you know, I had people excited about wanting to work with me and believing, you know, um, that I could provide value. And, you know, it was exciting. And then when I did get the offer, they beat out Comcast by 20%, right? And it was shocking to me because yet here I thought Comcast was finally giving me, you know, my fair share. Mm-hmm. But in reality, I had somebody who valued me even more. Even more. Mm-hmm. So you're, um, so before Comcast gave you an offer, you were making, let's say, you were saying like 35000 Comcast offered you like 50000 right? And you almost accepted it, but you didn't because you knew your self-worth and you kept looking. And um, that just goes to show that you should always like consider your options because even though it feels good to say, hey, like I've worked so hard to achieve, to get to the point where this company now values me. Well, if they value you, there's other companies out there who value that skill set too. Right? Absolutely. I look at the relationship between an employer and employee is a two-way street. And I didn't realize that at the time. At the time, I thought that like I should just be grateful that I have a job. But the reality is I'm not just a number, right? Like I'm not an employee number, right? I'm somebody who can add tremendous value and actually help move the company forward, given any opportunity. And that transition for me was huge because it was assuming a position of power over my own career. And that was, uh, that was super important. Yeah. And so now you're at this new job, right? It's outside of this kind of huge corporation, which is Comcast. And I'm sure they had like a lot of internal policies and software that was unique to them. And now you're working for the startup, right? So what was that like? Kind of what type of things were you exposed to that you weren't to before? So for me, while I was working there, it was an amazing opportunity. I was working directly with our development engineers. It was a Ruby on Rails stack. So I was learning the Ruby programming language for the first time. And I was determined, I was bound and determined to give them my best because they believed in me with you know, with no proof that I would add any value. Yeah. It's kind of like another person taking a chance on you. Exactly. That's exactly what like it's it was like. before. Exactly. So they were willing to take a shot on me and I was determined to add value and to, and to help. And I followed my same formula. I bought books. I work with people. I develop relationships and I try to find ways that I could help mediate any pain that the, you know, the organization was feeling essentially. And as an automation engineer, that's a great skill to have because you're looking to eliminate, you know, repetitive or redundant tasks. So that's exactly what I did. Yeah. And it sounds like throughout your career, um, you were almost like a free agent who plays for different football teams. And then every single time you kind of reach your peak, you say, hey, like, I want to push myself out of my comfort zone. I want to go learn this new thing. And while you're playing on that team, you're giving it your all. But at the same time, like with anything we do, with any hobby, with any activity, we do reach a point where we kind of hit the peak and then every hour that we put in doesn't produce the same amount of return in terms of how much we're absorbing or learning. It's kind of so, like playing for the minor leagues and you're like, hey, the NBA is over there. I think I could play in the league. Right. Like, Absolutely. You know, let me, let me try out. You so know? what were the big leagues for you then? <laughs> so for me, while I was working there, there was a consulting company working with us and that company was called ThoughtWorks. And I started to do a little research on ThoughtWorks. And the more I started to try to find out or the more I tried to discover within ThoughtWorks, the more intrigued I became with the company. ThoughtWorks is a software engineering consulting company who practice agile or 
guess I shouldn't say preach, but they're, they're big supporters. They're like, big supporters yeah. of the agile community. And I would see, I would even say that they're leaders in the agile community. And, and when I started to, when I started to, do, as I started to, to do research, not only was I impressed by their technical influence uh, within the industry, but I also really appreciated their commitment to social, to social justice. And that was important because that was the first time that I've seen any company take interest in making a positive social impact, at least for me. So as I became more and more interested in this company, I eventually reached out and I, you know, I got the job. Yeah. And, and what's interesting um, to what you were saying in the beginning is when you were growing up, you were literally fighting for survival, right? And you just wanted to have a job so you can put food on the table. And as you started to progress in your career, you started to do things that you love. You started to now reach the point where you say, hey, I can have a lot of jobs that will give me money, but I want to work for a company that actually has values that align with my own, right? And for people that don't know, like with, with ThoughtWorks, ThoughtWorks is one of the most difficult companies to get into. Yeah, And like, can you talk a little bit about that interview process? Absolutely. So, so you know, you both nailed it. As I was doing research on ThoughtWorks, you know, what intrigued me was their commitment to not only being what they looked at as a important, positive, social, socially aware organization, but their commitment to software excellence. So my thought was, if I can get to ThoughtWorks, if I can work at ThoughtWorks and work with some of the, you know, the most, you know, intelligent people in the world, then I can, I know that I can make it anywhere. So I started to do my research. I, you know, and I started to learn a little bit more about, you know, their interview process. And even going through the interview process is not nothing that I've ever been through since or up until that point. So I'm just thinking about the interview. So for me, as a, you know, a test automation engineer, they sent me essentially a website and they said, okay, before you come in for your interview, here's a site. We want you to test it. We want you. You're good. That's my sister. Okay. Shout out to Rebecca. It's her birthday. She's in town visiting hey, with her husband. We have two Harris's in the room now. Yeah, we're here. So I started to um, do my research just around like a lot of the stuff that they, that they valued. And they sent me this challenge and they basically said, hey, here's a website. We want you to go to this website and we want you to test it. We want you to write, you know, try to break it, like try to find, trying to find things that you think can be improved and give us like kind of like a report. And so I took, I would probably say roughly about four days. Like I took my time. I, like I wanted to make sure that I completely analyzed everything. And was it their actual website, like a, a live site, or was it kind of a test site that they give for interviews? So they give each applicant, well, people who are applying for software test engineering roles, they give them a site to test. And the Like a coding challenge or like, like a testing challenge? So the thing that's really interesting about their process or their process at the time was it's a little bit of both. So mm-hmm. they say, here's a site, go and use the site as you would as if you worked for a company and try to find ways that you could add value and what what would you do to help us? And so I went, I looked at the site, I read the, we have requirements essentially, Mm -hmm. like this site must do these things and you had to make sure the site met those requirements. So I took four days and my focus was on, was completely on trying to make sure I found every little difference, every little detail, everything. I would try to cause it to crash and 
respond in weird ways. And then eventually I started writing scripts around exercising all of the different flows throughout the app. And as I was going through that process, what I didn't know was that, and actually I'm thinking about it, I was like, mm, I don't know if it's yours. But in the app, they have analytics where they track everything that you do. And what that gives them is an idea into how you think, how you think about software and what are some of the things that you do that, you know, I'm fortunate now in hindsight that I spent so much time on it because they- it also shows like you were saying, how much time someone actually spends, how much does someone actually want this job? Are they going to spend five hours? Are they going to spend an hour? Are they going to spend four days? Exactly. And eventually I, I turned in both my overall assessment of what I thought of the application, several bugs, as well as I sent them code in two different programming languages, just showing them that I knew both Ruby and C Sharp at the time. And what I basically was trying to emphasize was that this is what I would do if, if I was working for your company. And roughly about a week later, I found out that I passed the coding challenge. Game over. So that was the coding challenge. And they had told me that there would be no in-person. They don't believe in, well, at the time, there would be no real- Qualitative. Whiteboarding. There wouldn't be much whiteboarding. That's interesting because that's pretty standard in the industry and the fact that they don't do whiteboarding challenges. What's the logic around that? So everybody performs differently in different settings and not everybody comes from environments where whiteboarding is a, a typical challenge that you go through, especially I'm not going to college. I was not, you know, I wouldn't know what to, you know, anticipate, you know, during a, you know, a, a coding challenge, at least at the time I didn't. Microsoft, when I did eventually work at Microsoft, there was whiteboarding. <laughs> yeah. So that's dope. So, so you're at, at ThoughtWorks, you know? So after the, after, the, after the coding challenge that I did essentially at home and, and submitting all of my code to them, they brought me in now for a cultural assessment. And this is where they ensure that their employees align socially with them as well. And this is something that they're very passionate about. They don't want to hire people who don't care about the state of the world or have no interest in trying to make a social. So this, is, this isn't just culture from an internal perspective. It's like a social justice external. How do you view the world? What impact do you want to make? Exactly. Type of mindset. And, you know, again, I've never seen a company care so not so much just about what value you can bring to the organization, but how do you want to affect the world? Right. Like, yeah. And I'm curious, Kind of with your background, did you share those like um, your story in the interviews, or did you just kind of like focus more on your prior job? Did you tell them like about where you grew up, like the hardships you've experienced? So I didn't focus on the hardships so much as I focused as they asked me questions around how I learn and how I work with others. A lot of your job as a consultant, your job is to kind of like assess, and you're frequently in environments where you're surrounded by people who you've maybe not you likely don't have a previous relationship with. Mm -hmm. So what the interview was focused on was how do you handle conflict? How do you work well with others? And what are some things that you can do in order to build rapport? And that for me, throughout that whole interview process, it completely challenged the way I thought. And I was exhausted at the end of it. But at the same time, I appreciated that they weren't looking for me to have the college degree or to have things on a checklist. They were focused on trying to identify, if hired, what impact would I make? And what can you do? And what can I do? 
So tell our listeners what you did next when you got there and um, what was that experience like? So I had never flown before. So when I finally got the offer letter, there was there was a lot of firsts for me. First job that I was ever making six figures. Mm-hmm. First job where that ever decided to fly me somewhere. So my first um, my first day on a job was in Chicago. They flew everyone who were studying with the company at the time to Chicago and where they're headquartered. And essentially, you got to meet a lot of the people, you know, at ThoughtWorks. You got an assignment essentially of where your where your your main office would be. There, they have offices all throughout the world, really. Yep. And I was headquartered out of New York. So after after about a week in Chicago, taking my first flight, you know, I eventually went to New York, and I was working out of New York for ThoughtWorks, and, and that kind of that essentially started my career at ThoughtWorks. And it was a lot of firsts, and it was amazing. First time flying, first time feeling like you know I'm able to take care of my family. It was also very, very challenging because I thought that the biggest challenge for me was always going to be technical. I always thought that there would be yet another thing technically that I had to learn, I had to become an expert in. And there were a lot of things that I did learn technically, but that wasn't actually my biggest challenge. My biggest challenge was coming to the realization that the most difficult thing in software engineering is actually not, not in my experience, the technical challenge. It's how do you work with other people? Boom. There's like everything that we do, anything that we build, you know, it's just how we communicate with computers in order to get them to, to have the desired outcome that we want. It's easy to tell a computer, you know, what to do, what you want, and eventually learn how to communicate in a way or to create a way within technology to accomplish the goal. But it's working with others that actually, that's your greatest strength. It's not actually what you know technically right now. It's how you can find the information, but how well do you work with others so that way you can maximize your impact collectively as opposed to individually. Yeah, because no man is an island. And uh, it does take a lot of, um, some teams have politics, so that's take a lot of like determination to go out of your way to like find out what the other person is thinking, what their working style is like. Also, at some point in everyone's career, you're going to encounter people that have egos. So finding out how to deal with that, it just takes a lot of uh, like emotional IQ uh, to be able to deal with all those personalities, right? Absolutely. And I would even say that it's also being able to recognize your own ego and recognize at times when am I holding this position because it is truly what I believe to be a better technical implementation or am I holding this position because I want to feel like, like I'm right. Yeah, like I'm right. right. And it's identifying that that gives you, in my opinion, a strength. Because when you recognize it and you realize and you're able to always tap into it without responding, then you can absorb actually more information. And, and that humility is is not weak. That meekness isn't weakness. It's, a, it's strength. Exactly. And that strength is that. And, you know, for me, it was easy primarily because... I always assumed I wasn't the smartest person in the room. I'm a high school dropout. Like, I know that there's tons for me to learn. So my goal isn't to be the smartest person in the room. And if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Straight up. Yep. So for me, uh, that was, that that came easy. Being willing to learn something new and accept new information from people. I was always eager to do that. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that you bring this up because 
a lot of people who are trying to break into tech from not traditional backgrounds, they probably have the social skills. They have those soft skills, but they're hungry to acquire the technical skills. And they think that, hey, what's holding me back? And like, what can I bring to the table? I don't know how to code. Like, why would they ever hire me? But it's super important to stress in your interviews, uh, the projects you've worked on, how, how do you work with, with others, kind of the teams you've been on, the leadership roles you've had. Because even engineering team, like, you only spend maybe 30% of your time engineer, like actually coding. The rest of the time is in meetings, talking about architecture, talking about challenging problems, getting the whole team on board. So for everyone listening, if you're trying to break into tech, whether it's engineering, product, whatever role, don't forget the soft skills. That's a huge uh, factor. I would even say that the soft skills are actually more important than the technical skills. And, and being able to tell your story in a way where like the soft skills that you develop you know, may not even have been in a corporate setting. So if you could translate something that you did in your life into, you know, your current work, you know, that's going to set you apart. Absolutely. And oftentimes it doesn't have to like if for, for so for me, as I'm applying for jobs, what I now know as my most important asset is what is my selling point. It's not on my ability to whiteboard, you know, code on a whiteboard. It's not on my ability to, you know, to build applications. It's in my ability to work with others and learn whatever new technology you have to learn. There's always going to be something new. They're coming up with new things to learn at a pace that school can't keep up. So if you learn how to learn and how to adapt quickly, that's your advantage. That's your selling point. So if you go into an interview, you know, what's your greatest strength? My ability to learn. And that is much more interesting than your GPA. Can you share uh, some of the tactics that you've used to teach yourself how to code? I know you mentioned that specifically when it came to like college or taking a course in college, that wasn't the best learning style for you. So when, but at the same time, you told yourself so many different things. So what did you do and how did you acquire that knowledge? So for me personally, I learned best through experimentation. It's not through just being prescribed or just being told what to do, but it's through taking a little bit of information and then trying to make this truth my own truth. And that comes through, you know, if you tell me that the the water's hot, I will believe you because, you know, I don't believe that you would want to lie to me, but it's only through feeling it that I actually make a mental connection and it holds, you know, and that's where, that's what I latch onto. So there, there has to be a certain level of creating a way that you can make information personal like almost muscle memory in some ways where you want to you experience it and then you internalize it versus reading about it and kind of trying to visualize it or imagine it and some people are more kind of i guess abstract thinker, thinkers where they could i don't know hold a lot of different pieces together and keep it make sense of it but then for some for others and i would put myself in that category too when i'm learning something new unless i apply it unless i'm learning how something works and I don't know, breaking it and running into roadblocks, it's not going to stick, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it was always about teaching myself how to make mistakes, mm-hmm. right? Because when you teach yourself, what I mean by that is I think some people, they hit roadblocks or they have code that don't work and then they become discouraged. But in my opinion, that actually is guiding, you know, indicators of, there's new information to discover, right? So when I get stuck on a problem and I can't, you know, originally starting out in Java, I couldn't get, you know, this code to compile. I realized that 
you know, it's not that I'm doing something wrong. It's more so that there's more information for me to obtain. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this, this inner talk, just telling yourself that when you do encounter problems, it's not something that um, you should try to run away from. There's always going to be problems, especially when you're dealing with building things that you've never especially built before. Especially when you're dealing with code. And it's frustrating. You might spend a weekend solving some problem where you maybe missed a parenthesis. And, uh, and that's okay because you're getting, even though it might seem like you're not moving fast or you're just being stuck, you're actually learning a lot. And then next time you encounter the same problem, you're just going to breathe through it and then you're going to encounter another one. So and I think actually doing it is, is a big deal because like a lot of times you can read books or watch lectures. You know, my mom always told me, you know, if you tell me, I might forget it. If you teach me, I might remember it. But if you involve me, you know, I fully understand it. And it sounds like for you, you're one of those people that until it's real to you, until you feel the heat coming from that hot water, you know it's hot. And exactly. You got it's time to go in. So yeah. So tell us. Um, so so far, you've lived on the East Coast. Uh, ThoughtWorks gave you that first uh, job where you started traveling a lot for the job, and then um, we know that now you actually live on the West Coast. How did you make that transition? So ThoughtWorks, as I started to travel with ThoughtWorks. ThoughtWorks was, I'm, I'm so appreciative to ThoughtWorks because they opened my view on so many things. One thing was Silicon Valley. I kind of like discovered Silicon Valley through ThoughtWorks. And I knew that the future was being created in Silicon Valley. And if I wanted to be, you know, a leader or make an important impact, you know, in my life and in the lives of others, it would be in Silicon Valley that that, that would be done. You wanted to find the highest hill. Exactly. And I knew that if it's out here, I had to be out here. So for me, I immediately started to try to find opportunities yeah. that would help me land kind of like a role, you know, out here in, in Silicon Valley. So I started applying at, at, at jobs. You know, the other thing was traveling was also eventually taking a toll, you know, being away from home five days a week. It wasn't like the, you know, best position to be in from a father perspective, from, from a father or a, a husband perspective, you know, or from a family man's mm-hmm. perspective. Um, so I couldn't, I can no longer continue, you know, continue to sustain you know, traveling consultant uh, style. So I started to look in Silicon Valley and I started to apply a few, to a few different jobs. Um, some jobs didn't even call me. I got a couple, I got a couple like emails that, you know, didn't really turn into much. Eventually I started to look at LinkedIn. You know, this was solid, like maybe four years ago. Um, I started to look into LinkedIn because I was using LinkedIn <laughs> to, to look for jobs. And as I was using link, LinkedIn to look for jobs, I was finding bugs in the software. And so what I started to do was start, I tr- started to try to connect with people on LinkedIn who said they worked at LinkedIn, who worked within the space that I worked in. And I would reach out to hiring managers and just hit the send request button. And So you're immediately, you're delivering value. You're like, listen, here's uh, the free testing that I've done, found some bugs. Now you guys know, go ahead and fix it, whatever you got to do, right? Exactly. I, you know, essentially I just tried to send them information um, that I thought was uh, valuable and essentially leveraging skills that I already had to try to make connections so that in a way that um, I could start to open some doors. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I, I just want to pause for a second. I think this is a super valuable point because a lot of people, when they're applying for companies, they're like, I'm coming from a non-traditional background. What value can I offer? Like They stop themselves from reaching out and making that connection with people on the inside. But one of the easiest ways just go experience the product, go look at their website, 
actually go through, go and purchase their- Download the app. Yeah, download the app. Like if they're selling meals, buy a meal, taste it. Like think about product suggestions, think about design suggestions. And it goes back to how you want to learn. Like you said, you got to actually use it. You got to do yeah. it. It's not just a job. If you're about that life and you don't just have the skills, that's going to also set you apart. Yeah, yeah, and just to add to that, if you have an untraditional background and you want a job at that company, doesn't matter what role you want to apply for. If you want to apply for a product role, come up with an idea or a pitch for a feature that they need to add. If you want to do sales, go out of your way to find a potential client that you can build a relationship it's with. A great suggestion. And then just email the hiring manager and just say, hey, like, just so you guys know, there's this person that wants your product. Pretty much, I did all the legwork. You just have to go sign them up. You know, if I you know want- my job is like trying to keep the lights on, and I'm, you know, I'm bringing you business right now. Yeah, that's how much I care. And you about can it. do this for any type of role, like biz dev, engineering, QA, product management, anything. So, especially with startups, since they're so young and they're so early, like they're usually understaffed. Like there's always bugs. So startups, if anything, it's the easiest companies to find uh, improvements in because. And hey, ways to ways yeah, to add value. Ways to add value because you could look at literally any startup you take. You could look at their website and find a hundred different things that they could improve on. So make a list and send it to the hiring manager. That's absolutely that's great suggestions all around, and that's exactly the way that you stand out from the people who just submit their applications. Like they get thousands of applications, all companies within Silicon Valley, and you know how do you stand out and one thing that I started to do was I started to like quotes or I started to identify the skills based on the job description. And I would just reformat my resume to include all of these same words. That's one of the best, best things that you could do. And something that like a lot of times people don't realize that even phrasing your emails in a way that uses some of that language and makes it also relatable is something that's going to get a response as well. Because a lot of times like People don't realize that if you send an email the right way, you could structure it in a way where there's no reason why they wouldn't respond, even if it's a no. If right. you get a response, that's a connection. an accomplishment. Right. So anyway. Yeah. So you were saying how you were making that transition. Um, you were st- starting to look at companies on the West Coast, right? Absolutely. So I started to, I started to kind of like just scan for jobs. And eventually I was um, looking through LinkedIn and, and trying to make connections at LinkedIn. I eventually got it in touch with a hiring manager who was like, oh yeah, thanks for, you know, reaching out. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'd love to have you, you know, definitely go through our process. And so that landed me a phone interview and the phone interview was, this is kind of like my first real interaction with, I would say typical Silicon Valley experience and that they called me and the goal was to basically assess my um, technical ability. So they asked me several technical questions and it, the the thing that was odd about this experience was that I feel I felt as though the conversation immediately as it started came from a position of you know who is this person like we don't have in like like who you know I, you know my guess is that they looked at you know my resume and at the time you know ThoughtWorks was the greatest thing that I that I had done but no educational background you know I had no connections in the Silicon Valley area a lot of the conversation was centered around like, prove it. What do you know? Prove it. Right. And, 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 you know, throughout the questions, like I, I got to ask typical programming questions, reverse a string and walk me through 
how you would go about testing this or talk to me about some of the testing tools that you use. Answered all the questions, you know, to the best of my ability at the time and thought that I gave pretty decent answers. Tried to be friendly, you know, joke, laugh. I didn't really get, I could sense that this call wasn't going the way that I had hoped. And later on, I eventually get another kind of like LinkedIn message from the manager that I reached out to. And he was like, you know, hey, if you're going to reach out to the hiring manager, make sure that you, you know, next time that you're you're ready. And I was just like, thanks for the feedback. You know, I did my best. You know, I'm sorry if this, you know, Mm -hmm. if it didn't work out because I didn't get the rejection at the time. But the tone of the response Mm -hmm. was that I wasted, you know, his time. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm more than welcome to or I'm open to feedback. And if you have any feedback on things that I could do better, you know, I, I love to, to hear that. And then the feedback that I got was, we don't think you, you know, we don't think you took this, you know, this interview serious. You know, you were laughing and joking. And for me, I was just being me. I was mm-hmm. just, you know, I don't take life too seriously. I, I take work serious, but not life. Life is meant to be enjoyed, in my opinion. And work is but a means to an end. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I want to do the best work of my life, but the only way that I do that is if I'm genuinely happy and that's important yeah 100 and um the job that you or the job that people usually apply for you need to screen the other side as much as they're screening you so if, if you're trying to pretend like you're someone who you're you're actually not and you're applying for the job just so they can give you an offer just realize that that's a sign that you're probably not going to be happy working there. So absolutely culture is important and yeah. if the culture is, is one where you can't be your genuine self you are better off waiting until you find the right opportunity or continuing to search for the right opportunity because having a job where you don't feel as though you're thriving or you're being authentic, mm-hmm. it's just another form of being, you know, in prison. Yeah. Mental. We talk a lot about mental and physical prisons. And so, you know, how did you break through that? It wasn't a mental prison, but like, how did you break through that? Or you could correct me if I'm wrong. How did you go through that kind of experience after, after that? I think it's it's holding on to what you believe you deserve. And part of that for me is deserving to work in an organization that value me for just being genuine. And at times, you know, that means that we're serious. But at other times, such as when you first meet someone, you know, I feel as though it should be, I don't know, there's, I should feel as though it should be warm. It should be a sense of, I'm about to meet a person, who, you know, who we may, we may connect with, right? And I think that's a that's a positive thing. There's not, you know, that's something yeah. that you should be excited for. No, totally. And um, in the pre-chat, you shared with us, like, so you once you made your way out to the West Coast, to the Bay Area, you did something interesting because you had the engineering job, but then you went out of kind of, you did something untraditional that many engineers don't consider doing, and you start, you got a second job. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what led you to looking for the second job? And then what was that like living on the West Coast compared to the East Coast? So after basically eventually receiving the rejection letter that I, they would not move forward, mm-hmm. you know, through the interview process, I continued to just, well, at one point I started to have doubts. I'm just like, well, maybe Silicon Valley is not for me. Maybe I won't make it there because I'm not from there. So I, I stopped for a couple of weeks, but then, you know, I decided not to, not to let it in there, not to give up. So I continued to keep looking. I eventually got an interview that eventually led to an offer working for Yammer, an acquisition that Microsoft, or a company that was eventually acquired by Microsoft. And working 
coming out to Silicon Valley, getting that first offer, you know, I didn't really know anything about negotiating salaries. I didn't really know anything about the cost of living in Silicon Valley in comparison to Philadelphia. So the first offer that, you know, I was given, I didn't put too much pressure on, you know, negotiating my salary. I kind of asked like, is there room to negotiate? And I kind of got told, no, there's really no room to negotiate. We don't really have much information or we don't really know much about the impact that you'd make here. So we're going to start you out on the lower end. So that way we get a sense of how you can contribute before leveling you up, essentially. And at this point, this is not your entry job into into this field, right? You already worked for ThoughtWorks. You already had multiple other jobs doing this. So they should have given you or they should have given you like what you were worth, right? Absolutely. So they gave me they gave me a salary that was entry level and it was based on, I believe, my lack of education. Mm-hmm. So not having that college degree and not having experience with companies that they've worked at, right? Not being in that network mm-hmm. caused them to be just distrustful and unknown, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm unknown essentially. So to me- And did you try to negotiate as well? Or? So I, I didn't try to negotiate too much because my thought process was, this is Microsoft. Let me at least get there. And even if I have to be a second rate citizen, so to speak, this would at least open up more opportunities for me in the future. So let me go there, prove them, that I could add value. And then eventually I'd be. So looking back, would you have done anything differently? Kind of, if you were going, kind of applying to Microsoft again and you were in the same shoes, knowing what you know now, I guess, would you have uh, negotiated more or would you have asked for a higher offer? So knowing what I know now, I know the emphasis is on selling the value that you bring, right? And that's a different a different position to be in. Before, I was just trying to prove that I was good enough. But the transition for me now is I know the value. I know the impact that I can make. So now it's just a matter of how do I effectively communicate the impact that I know that I'd make working at any organization that I work at. And that is where you put yourself in a much different position from an entry-level engineer to I can be a leader in your organization and I can help you reach your ambitious goals. And that's the lesson that I learned. And that's how you move from the position being on, please give me a job to I'm somebody that you want or you need to hire. You got to know what your power is. You got you to be a student that's of exactly power on your end and on their end. You got to understand like when somebody's going to put a premium on something and how to tell that story because everyone has power. Um, you just got to learn how to convey it and make the other person understand. Exactly. And that is, in my opinion, the most important thing in the interview process. We talked about this not being about them interviewing you, but you also interviewing them for what information and what value can they add to your resume and to your life. And when you understand that it's, this isn't a, they're doing you a favor, right? This is a mutually, this is a business arrangement. Like you don't go into, you know, business with another business under the assumption that you. They're doing you a favor. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That's exactly what they, they could hire another person, right? It's they, not they don't have to, Yeah. They're not just hiring you because they want to be nice. They could have hired someone else, but they see value in you that they haven't found in anyone else, or at least in that candidate pool. That's why they're picking you over everyone else, right? Exactly. And your job is to take that fire and fan it and make them feel. Yep even more secure and even more excited about 
the prospect of you working for them. Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, mind shift because even like if you look at the economy overall and like the labor markets shifting over time, if you like, maybe 20 years ago, people worked for big companies, they worked for factories, like the idea of, hey, I'm going to come to- You worked in a factory, essentially. Yeah, I did, I did. Yeah, like if you come to a factory and you basically say, hey, you're offering me $10 an hour, like I want to make 20 hours an hour, they're going to say, no, I'm going to pick another guy who's going to kind of, your labor is very commoditized, right? Absolutely. Versus when you think about a tech, like there's so like a good engineer or a good worker could produce 10x results, right? But even like if you're doing a, a job in a factory too, there's a lot of intangibles that you can do to demonstrate that you are worth that $28. You can, but it's much harder to make that case when your work is more physical. Yeah, the, the work is more physical. And it's also in some degree, like you're going to be doing something repetitive. So you're not going to be able to reuse all your assets and all your creativity. 100%. Um, so I think that's interesting that kind of you, like what you know now is basically, hey, I'm going to come to the negotiating table from a position of power. I'm going to explain what value I bring to the table and make them believe that they should have me on their team. And can you can you talk a little powerful. bit about who and how you started getting coached on negotiation? So I think to learn anything, there's a certain level of struggle you have to go through. And the struggle for me to learn that lesson was working at Microsoft, but still struggling to feed my family and to make ends meet made me realize that I have not made it yet. And I have to continue to look whether that means looking outside or internally, I have to continue to move forward. So I started to look for, you know, the next opportunity, whether that been whether that was internal and within Microsoft or out, you know, outside. And I looked both in both areas. And, ex- and you also had to pick up a side job, right? Correct. So while I was working at Microsoft, I don't mind sharing this. I have two kids. I have a wife, and I was at a salary of $120,000, I'm sorry, $120,000 per year. And- Before taxes. That's before taxes. And, you know, saying it out loud and being from Philly, oh, that sounds great, right? And I even came out here thinking that was great. But for a family of four, that's honestly, you're going to be struggling. Especially in the Bay Area, right? It's one of the most expensive cities in the world. The rent itself, like if you have an apartment, you're probably giving half of that just for rent. And you're not just paying for food for you and your wife. You're paying food for an entire family. And Absolutely. kids have Take needs care. too. you yeah. raising them. you teaching them. They're learning education. So. Absolutely. I mean, rent alone in San Francisco, my rent's close to 40000 a year, right? So Alone. There you go. So like you already- So yeah. already do the math, right? And that's before taxes, right? Yeah. Like, so if you, if you do the math, you know, that's actually, that's not a lot. Mm-hmm. And so what I had to do was the same thing that I always do. I tried to figure out ways that I could survive. I did a little bit of consulting on the side and then eventually started driving for Uber. But 40 hours in at Microsoft, put 20 hours in driving for Uber. And people thought I joked when I was driving around and people were like, oh, do you do this full time? And I was like, no, you know, full time, I'm a software engineer at Microsoft. And they're like, why the hell are you driving Ubers then, like on the side? <laughs> Especially in Silicon Valley Especially where like here. software engineers are seen as like the, the legends. Exactly. And I was just like, you know, my family's got to eat. And I would take that feedback and I, would, I gave it back to my management group. And I say like, you know, one, the work that I was doing, I was working at a capacity that was much higher than the level that they had brought me in. And then two, I tried to emphasize and or I tried to convey that the time I'm spending in this other job could be time that I could be devoting solely to 
to Microsoft. So you could gain more value if I could focus more. So you try to negotiate, you try to communicate with your management and say, hey, like, I like the company. I just need a raise so I can put food on the table for my kids and uh, not have to have a side job. I can use that 20 hours a week to build products for you, right? Absolutely. And I can say that, like, I I work with some great people when I was there and they heard me. It, you know, I got really good feedback about the work that I did. And I definitely got, um, you know, once, you know, light was brought to the situation that this was the situation that that I was in. There were attempts to find opportunities for, you know, for me to essentially apply for a promotion. The process, though, because it is a larger company, it's a little more involved. And I wasn't willing to wait, you know, throughout the entire process. So while that process was in motion, I started to look externally for other opportunities as well and try to find a place where they value me from the door at where I thought that I needed to be, essentially. Yeah, and what was interesting during the pre-chat is you mentioned you had a mentor, right, who actually gave you some guidance on how to approach your next uh, job search, right? Absolutely. So I had a mentor who helped me when I was still working in Philly. What's her name? Her name is Julie. Shout out to Julie. Yeah, and I won't mention her last name just because I I don't want to blow her up, but like her name is Julie, and... I reached out to her and and I kind of explained my situation and I was like, Julie, I really appreciate, I really love the job that I'm working at in terms of like Microsoft is a great place to work. And, you know, there's a great sense of security there. I was like, but I'm, I'm not making ends meet and I need to, to start looking, you know, externally. And she said that if you are not able to take care of your family, you absolutely need to go where they value you. And I started to essentially look for other opportunities and as I started to do that, I, I started to, I, I was still both driving for Uber and working for Microsoft and now looking for a new job. And the, I had a couple offers. A lot of people were impressed that I worked at Microsoft so that it was worth it, right? That, you know, and. Well, yeah, your, the resume was definitely a good move, right? Right. So it was definitely a good move for me to, to get that role. So that way that, again, I gave them something that they could latch onto that they felt familiar with so that they would were they were willing essentially to look past the fact that I didn't have my college degree. Well, yeah, he doesn't have his college degree, but he works at Microsoft. So I kind of like got yeah. that credibility. Stamp of approval from like Microsoft, like one of the best tech companies out there. Exactly. And what it is, is making people feel comfortable with you. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, goes back to, can you convince them that you would bring, you would bring value? If I could bring value to Microsoft, surely I could bring value to any other organization that I worked at. And I think there's a quote that goes, you never get, it's a sales quote. So you never get fired from buying from IBM. So it's kind of the same uh, theory is that like, even it makes the job easier for the other company that will give you a job offer because the hiring manager could always say, I didn't just hire someone who doesn't have a college degree. I hired someone who was good enough to work at Microsoft. So it makes his decision a lot easier to make, right? Absolutely. There's a sense of security and their commitment and mm-hmm. in, in their investment. As I was looking for roles, I eventually, I discovered our CEO, Slack CEO, Stuart Butterfield, his uh, We Don't Sell Saddles. And um, this is a post on Medium. And it was originally an internal email he sent out to all of his and employees. And it was, for me, such a great article that talked about the company's values. And I felt 
connected to the values even before I started working here. So I started to look into it. I, I went and I applied, went through the um, interview process, but this time, you know, armed with this, this knowing that I had value, mm-hmm. knowing that I can be, you know, critical uh, to the growth of your organization. Mm-hmm. And it put me in a much better position. And how, how did you think about like your ranges that you wanted to negotiate in and talk about like how, you know, that kind of guidance that she gave you? So because I realized that the problem was I didn't previously go into looking for a specific, you know, I didn't go into it. I didn't come to Silicon Valley looking for a specific salary. I was just looking to work in an amazing place with amazing people and contribute in some way. But because I was still struggling and because of the feedback that I got from Julie was that, well, the feedback that I got from Julie was to focus first on identifying your number. And your number is what do you need, not just to survive, but what do you need to be comfortable? Because everybody deserves to be comfortable, especially if you're, you know, if you're working your ass off. If you're working your ass off, you're giving somebody one third of your life, eight hours at a minimum is one third of your life. If you, you know, factor in sleep, that's technically you got eight hours, you know, to work and then eight hours to do everything else in life. So work is half of your life. Mm. And at a minimum. At a minimum, work is half your life. And for me or people like me who know that you have to give it your all. And like, you know, I, I don't think I've ever worked. I still don't work 40 hours a week, not because I have to just because it's not, that's not what I believe in. I believe in giving it your best. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that doesn't mean necessarily long hours, but for me, most of the time it does. <laughs> so how did you quantify that? So what she suggested, and it was, it was really, really helpful for me, was she told me to identify the number that I needed to, to not only pay all my bills, but she said, factor in stuff like, cause, you know, like zoo trips, t- like you want to take your family. She's like, factor in vacations. She's like, factor those things in and figure out what that number is. And then once you figure out what that number is, that is the bare minimum that you should ever accept moving forward. And so I was just like, oh, wow, I never did that before. Let me, let me actually try to figure that out. So, you know, I, I eventually, you know, I sat down, I did the math and I came up with a number and I was just like, okay, I need this, you know, this number to to survive comfortably and mm-hmm. still be able to do movies and zoo trips and, you know, and not drive for Uber. And she was like, okay, now add $10,000 on top of that. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm already like substantially ahead of where I'm at <laughs> currently in Microsoft. You want me to add 10,000 on top of that? Am I getting greedy now? And she's like, no, but you need room to negotiate. And then two, if they see value in you and they are a, not a company who's struggling financially, they should be willing to invest in the future and they should be willing to invest in what they know the, that you could bring. So, you know, a lot of this was like, you know, I, it got me super nervous. I was just like, man, I don't know, I, you know, this offer, you know, I really want to work at Slack. I don't want to turn them off. And she was just like, you know, you got to ask for what you need and what you know that will help you stay focused solely on providing value back to Slack. If you're driving for Uber on the side, you're not giving your all back to Slack. So it's like, you're absolutely right. So I sent Slack a number and they went above it and they said that, okay, and this is what we, we'd offer you instead. And they went up higher. Even higher than the number you suggest? They even, even higher than the number that I originally asked for. And that's actually kind of, um, I think that's an amazing kind of way to calculate your expenses. 
But I remember the advice I got from when I was looking for a job too from someone was basically never name your number first because you might for bootcamp grads especially like you don't know like you might be interviewing with a small startup who just maybe like bootstrapping you might be interviewing with a bigger company that has a much bigger budget and when you name your number first you're basically revealing your cards and on the other side like the recruiter might have been willing to give you twenty thousand more thirty thousand more but by virtue of kind of going first you kind of put yourself in a weaker spot and so no matter like kind of like how much how pressured or how like you might feel like hey like i'm getting I don't know, 50% more than I made at my previous job. I would be happy to have number X. Just try to like abstain from it and hear them out first. And then you'll have the opportunity to go second and negotiate. But that's kind of one of the biggest mistakes people make when they negotiate. When but, but I think something that you did, which was important, is you didn't just throw out like an industry average, right? You said, like, what, you asked yourself, what would make me happy? What would make my family happy? And then you're like, in case they start negotiating, like, let me add another like bonus to give me buffer, and they accepted that. So you got what you wanted, right? Yeah, Which and is in this situation, it was yeah. okay to put out your number because you did that research yeah. and that analysis before. Absolutely. So for me, I did put out my number first, but I knew that you know my emphasis, and this is when in the communication that I sent to them where I had my number, I emphasized. I was like, if you truly want my best, if you truly want my complete focus, and you want me to make the impact. This is what I need in order to both provide for my family and give you complete focus. Yeah. And I wasn't willing to take, you know, I had my minimum. Yeah. I already had my minimum in mind, but. And when you have confidence, when you say that, they can tell that. Absolutely. And if you don't believe it, if you're throwing out a number, you you got a little, are they going to take it or not? Yeah. They're going to be like, they're going to lowball you. Your number has to be based on something, right? Like your number can't be, I'm going to throw out this number based on nothing. But for me, my number was, again, based on what I could provide for my family and also based on, again, what I know that I can bring to your organization. And I re-emphasized that within that communication. Like, I know I'm asking for this. And I didn't say that I'm asking for a lot. I just said, this is what I'm asking for. And this is what I bring. And then they gave it to you. And what did you bring? And, Tell them. Yeah. So, you know, I, as soon as as soon, the first thing I did was one rip that Uber tag off my car. <laughs> right. That's the first thing that I did. So for, like as soon as I accepted the offer, I ripped that Uber tag like right off my car. But, you know, prior to me even starting, I started to just do research on mm-hmm. their stack mm-hmm. and try to, you know, I reached out and I said like, oh, is there any, any books that you, that I, you can send me or that you can give me links to ways that I can learn more about how Slack works and, yeah. that would prepare me so that I can hit the ground running, right? Like I was just excited to start. Like you, they believed in me. So yeah. I'm going to give you everything that I got. 150%. Exactly. 10X. Yeah. So yeah. tell us a little bit about your like day-to-day job and then what teams do you work on on daily basis? And what does Slack do as well? So Slack is an enterprise social platform that allows team members to communicate and collaborate in, with each other in real time. We communicate in what we call channels, and we basically have a lot of what we do as software engineers integrated directly within this single point of contact, essentially this, this, this chat application. And what I do at Slack is I help identify ways that which I can have a lot of our testing suites provide us with much more valuable information. So 
a lot of times when you are building software, you don't start out by you don't start out by building uh, you know thousands of tests. You start out by trying to get something that's functional. For folks who follow test driven development, you know they may be in a much better position than you know. But more often than not, you know you start off with a sole focus of trying to create something without you know testing will come and there's a an extensive level of um, manual testing but what tests can we put in place that will basically ensure that as we continue to change our application as we continue to add features to it the things that functionality that we promise works exactly as we expect it to and so, I, I think to the listeners just to give another example of what testing is is imagine there is um, a building and you're building this, you're adding new floors to this building, but at the same time, the st- structure of the building is being, some poles or be- beans are, are being swapped out. So every single change that you make, there is a risk that somewhere else in the building, another wall might collapse or some uh, floor might like just break out. And uh, when you have thousands or millions of users, that could have a huge impact on your business. If you're a bug leads to your emails or like passwords get that get leaked that could cost a company a billion dollars. So yeah, yeah, and I think like out of everything that you've accomplished, I think what's remarkable on top of all, all these types of things is not only the work that you're doing, but the leadership that you demonstrated in an organization called Dev Color. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So as I was working at Slack, I discovered Dev Color, and Dev Color is an organization, is a nonprofit organization where they look to maximize the impact and the growth of black software engineers in tech. And I discovered them roughly a couple months after um, working at Slack. And I knew immediately that I wanted to be, you know, I didn't have a network coming out here. And I wanted to, to be a part of, you know, this, you know, that tight knit group that I was told that Silicon Valley is. And so I immediately reached out and after some time, I got accepted into their A-STAR program, which is basically a program where they put software engineers, black software engineers that, who are intact at some of the best companies you know, in the world in Silicon Valley, they put them in what they call squads. And what we do is we share experience, we share information, and we try to help each other overcome challenges that we may have faced. And share information about ways that they, they can maximize their career and maximize your impact. Is it just for senior people or junior people can be a part of it? What's the, so what's the, the f- process like to be part of your squad? So to join DevColor, you can submit your application. You can be a um, junior engineer. You can be a, a, a senior engineer. You can be a business leader who wants to just be available for, for mentoring. There's different levels and there's different ways to be involved in DevColor. For the person who's the, you know, who is an engineer, you just go on the site, apply, and, do it, do it. and we'll yeah. include and, the links uh, and everything else in the show notes. And while well. you're looking up the name, I have a question that you may not have the answer for. What if, you know, I'm getting hype about Dev Color right now and I'm white? How can I support Dev Color? So the site is uh, devcolor.org and the Membership, the A-Star membership program is looking for people who are currently software engineers. And the idea behind it is that it's an opportunity for you to connect with other software engineers so that you can share experiences. Um, For other folks, um, whether you are a white engineer or you are just a person who wants to help um, the organization, you can go to 
devcolor.org and there's a sponsor page where you can sponsor what they call employee uh, employees and residents in, in terms of um, providing opportunities for uh, work as well as opportunities if you are in leadership to mentor and to, you know, um, to there's a lot of ways you can help. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's amazing. Your meetups are dope. I know you guys host them here and in other places. So maybe it might be like somebody willing to open up their space to organize a meetup. And no, this this is great. Yeah. If you're listening out there and um, you fit the criteria, then you should definitely go on the website and apply. Good. Yeah. So, so for our listeners who are wondering what they need to do to acquire this skill set of being a test automation engineer, I've heard personally that there's some QA schools that provide you with that skill. Kind of what's your view on that versus just learning traditional software engineering and then uh, kind of going from there? So in my opinion, test automation or test engineering or test infrastructure and so many other flavors of focusing on quality and focusing on testing, it's just a small subset of software engineering. So in my opinion, you want to focus on software engineering as a whole and not on a subset of it. And the reason why I say that is because the more context that you have in the field generally, then the more value you add to the organization. So if you are in a role where you are focused on quality or you're focused on test automation, if you are coding and programming in the same language that your application is being built in and working directly with the developers, you add more value. You decrease the amount of time that it would take to get on the same page about you know the bug that you're looking to report yeah so how would how would one go to acquire these skills are there online tutorials books what resources would you recommend they use so if i would say that test automation or any role within the quality realm because there's the thing that I, i realize is that every single company has roles for people who focus on testing and people who focus on quality everybody needs to be sure that the thing that they build is actually working the way they expect it to work. And while much of the emphasis is on building it right in the first place, you need to validate that it's actually right if you And you can't have the same person building it, validating that it's right, right? I wouldn't say that you can't, but you should always have as many eyes as possible. And because the sooner that you get more additional, more feedback, and the sooner you know how it actually feels to use and to, you know, what's what's the experience like on your application? That information is valuable because what you prevent is what customers would experience, right? Yep. So you 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 know you get feedback about what it's like because when you're building it, you start to have a very narrow view. You're solely looking to satisfy requirements of something that you're, you're building, but your role as a person who's focused on quality is to find out what we didn't plan for. Yeah. Right. And that's where the value comes in. Yeah. Is shortening that development or that iteration or the iteration cycle. Yeah. And from my experience as a software engineer, whenever I build something, most likely I'll be building something and using, let's say, Chrome as the browser. But there's other browsers out there like Safari, Firefox. And as an engineer, you just don't have the time to not only fulfill the requirement, but then also now exhaust all the other options that are out there. And you probably don't have the same skill set of like attention to detail to be able to pick those things out. So a lot of the times having that niche for those details is what makes a great test automation engineer. Absolutely. Um, There's a certain level of being curious 
I would say being curious is a great trait to have if you're going to focus on tooling and, and quality. Because if you're curious about how things work, you're going in with an one, the ability just to seek out like the how and the why, but you also try to identify how could this be better? And you can help with not only just finding bugs, but also talking to the experience of what it was like to use the application as, a, as the person who didn't build it. Yeah, definitely. So you, you dropped a lot of gems. Um, you shared a lot of stories and a lot of advice to our listeners. When you just started out with your story, you mentioned that you have 13 brothers and sisters. So if you had to give them advice on what career path they should pick or how to break into tech if they are interested in tech, what advice would you give them now that you've gone through this whole journey? So I think that I wouldn't give any advice around what career to pick, primarily because I didn't discover it. I don't think software engineering based on a desire to, you know, out of something that someone told me that I should do, but more so that you should be curious about what exists that would make you feel fulfilled. And if that's software engineering and if that's technology, that's great. And the most important skills that you should try to obtain is one, the ability to learn and the ability to always seek more and new information. Software engineering is forever growing and it's growing faster and it's moving faster. It's not enough to know one thing, but it's your ability to learn that actually brings you much more value or it, it's, that's the value you bring to the organization much more so than what you currently have. The second thing is how well do you work with others? Many people think that the most important thing is for you to be technically savvy. In my experience, the driving factor for success is how well you work with other people. It's your soft skills. It's how well you communicate. And it's how well you build relationships with some of the people that you work with. So far throughout my entire career, technology hasn't been the challenge, right? Like it's making sure that I understand how to how to build rapport with, with people who don't share my, this exact same background. I'm from Philly and, you know, we talk, we speak a lot differently in Philly. We have different mannerisms with each other. Learning how m certain things that I do can cause a reaction in others and learning how to use that to become more self-aware and to know when to, you know, speak a certain way. That in the end is your ability to work with other people. And the more you can enhance that ability, the more organizations or more places you could work. Or even when you, if you decide to run your own company, you still need to instruct other people and you need to learn how to inspire them and how to get them on the same page. Mm -hmm. So how do you learn and how well can you work with others? It's not even about the technical stuff. It's about maximizing your effectiveness with other people. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And, and thanks again for taking the time to taking the time to speak with us you've definitely inspired us what's the best way for people to keep in touch with you if anyone wants to reach out i would probably say twitter qa geek qag 33k um k but um or linkedin okay. i'm on linkedin and twitter okay awesome awesome well thanks again for the time and we'll we look forward to seeing what you do with dev caller and slack in the future i yeah. appreciate it thanks, thanks a lot man. thanks man thanks for checking us out we appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought in the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, 
encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.